Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Back Room. I'm Andy Ostroy. We've got a really fun conversation for you today. Edie Falco is in the house. We're going to bring out Edie in just a second. But first, thanks for tuning in today. We appreciate you listening, and we'd love to hear your comments. So email us at backroomandy at gmail.com and or post on our social media, and we'll read some feedback next time. And if you like the podcast, please follow or subscribe and rate and review, and you'll be notified every time we post a new episode. Edie Falco is best known for her roles as Diane Whittlesey on the HBO series Oz, Carmela Soprano on The Sopranos, and the title role of Showtime's Nurse Jackie. Her TV roles have earned her multiple Emmy, Golden Globe, and SAG Awards. Her Broadway credits include the Tony Award-winning play Sideman, Frankie and Johnny in the Claire de Lune, Night Mother, and The House of Blue Leaves, for which she received the Tony Award nomination. Off-Broadway, she's appeared in The Madrid, This Wide Night, The True, and Morning Sun. Her work in feature film includes Cost of Living, for which she won the American Film Institute's Best Actress Award, Laws of Gravity, she was nominated for an Independent Spirit Award for that, Sunshine State, Landline, Hurricane, The Funeral, The Addiction, Freedom Land, The Land of Steady Habits, Judy Berlin, and the Avatar sequels. Edie, welcome into the back room. Thank you. Happy to be here. So we have to start with the most important thing, which is something I think is near and dear to both of our hearts, the Knicks. Holy macaroni. Nice season, yeah. huh? Fun. Yeah. Fun time. Uh, I don't know. It, it is a kind of fun that I, ha- I don't have any place else in my life. It is a very specific thing. Uh, you know, it started when I was on Sopranos and we were getting offers of all kinds of things, you know, and someone said, come to a Knicks game. And I thought, oh. and I went and we sat uh, courtside mm-hmm. and I was hooked. I was hooked immediately. Oh, so you, well, you weren't town. a fan before that or? Oh, wow. You know, very Courts, courtside will do that to you. Yeah, you know, it's like, you know, flying commercial after your first private jet. It's like, nah, right. can't do this. <laughs> <laughs> One of the horrors of being spoiled. Listen to me. Shoot me in the head. Um, but yeah, that's that's kind of what started my somewhat uh, maniacal love of the Knicks. Yeah, you're a pretty rabid fan. I am. I am. Uh, I started many years ago, and I remember early on, the season ended, came back for the next season, and they were different players. And I was sort of gobsmacked, like, what? Right. This is the, what the Knicks were these guys, mm-hmm. you know, whoever it was, Stephon Marbury or something. Mm-hmm. All these guys were, you guys were in. And that's something that's taken some adjusting of over the last 20 something years. Like, oh, I see. The Knicks is like a thing that is inhabited by various people, and you can grow to love them too. Yeah. And the Knicks usually suck. And so that's. Right? You know, it's like, you know, you get used to having your heart broken. And I'm sure yeah. there's something, you know, to be learned in that as well. I've had season yeah. tickets since 2001. Um, wow. I, I've been a Knicks fan for a long, long time. And the reason I got tickets, uh, it was act- it's kind of a funny story. It's, I mean, literally on my, maybe my second date with Adrian, we were talking about basketball because she was a huge Yan- Yankees fan. And I said, yeah, I really want to get season tickets but you know they go on sale tomorrow but i i'm you know i'm never the guy that gets concert tickets like everything always passes me right. by <laughs> and she said you have a you have a company right i said yeah she goes you got a lot of employees i said yes she goes put 20 of them on the phone the nanosecond tickets go on sale and one of them will get through and that's what i did and i literally I had all my employees I said somebody scream if you get through and my office manager screamed i'm in i'm in and that was it i got tickets <laughs> 
Holy like I, I, I started literally in the next to the last row when the old 400s level, uh, right. and then worked my down. And now I'm like caddy corner, but pretty close. But uh, I, I've gone and sat. My friend Jeremy Sisto has taken me, and it's a different, uh, it's a whole different ball game down there, literally and figuratively. Um, literally, you know, you're looking when you're looking up, up at players. It's unbelievable! You're on TV, the... <laughs> like regular people. You're yeah. courtside, and you're literally looking up like this. But just hearing this, like the sneaker squeaks, like that's all it. it's like that's all you need is a good sneaker squeak. And you know <clears> the <throat> mutter, the faces, and the energy. Yeah. You know the these guys running around. It's a really stunning sport to watch when it's done, you know, to the level of these NBA guys. Well, even just really watching them visually, I mean, these people are like, they're not built like normal humans. Like they're just- That's right. And they're in the prime of their physical lives, right. you know, that age that they're at. They will never be that strong again. And they are as strong as they have ever been. And it is exquisite, especially as one starts to age. And yeah. I was with a friend and I we were like, can you imagine- if I tried to do with that guy, just just like running, stopping, and then running, sure. I'd be at the hospital for special surgery very shortly. Yeah, well, end. that's that's why people our age probably shouldn't try to do layups and stuff. That's right. <laughs> well, you know, it's been a while, but it, it sure is fun to watch somebody good do it. So what did what'd you think of the RJ for OG trade? I fell apart. I, I took it really mm. hard. I'm a jerk. Mm. I mean, really, uh, uh, I mean... RJ is a great player, but it was quickly yep. that, I mean, it was totally. like, it was like having an imp on the team yeah. or like gazelle. There's something about the way this kid moved at moves. Conti he continues to move though. Not with the Knicks mm -hmm. Saturday night. I know they're playing the Raptors, so we'll get mm -hmm. to see it, which is heartbreaking, but yeah, I really just liked him as an entity on the team. He was always like making faces and doing little dances. There was something exquisitely lovable about the guy. Yeah. But I'm not going to miss RJ. He never really hit his, potential you know he had a couple of fantastic games and i know mm. people really believed in him but you know I, they were you know i will never say anything bad about rj barrett that will come back to haunt me so that's all i'll say about mm -hmm. that but it, but uh quickly really broke my heart well hopefully this season is going to end well much better than other seasons it, it i mean they're seven games i think over 500 and I, playing well with so this guy, new guy og so sure. who knows you know sure. So I want to definitely talk about all kinds of career stuff, but I want to go back a little bit in time and also talk about the non-career stuff. Single parent, raising two kids. How's that going? Yep. Oh, God. Really? <laughs> <laughs> they are. I asked that rhetorically, by the way. Yes, exactly. Well, I, you know, how much time do you got? They are 15 and 18. They are, uh, they're not fun ages, probably for them either, but certainly not for the single parent. Mm -hmm. raising in this particular environment you know are they more fun uh, than when they were 13 and 16 uh because that's a rough bit that, that mm. was particularly rough yes uh, a little bit as they become more independent but you know like people used to say little kids little problems big kids big problems so i'm definitely in the big kids big problems place yeah um, like even like my son has a car and he's driving and i live in westchester now and it's snowing so that in and of itself right. is a whole thing and anticipated you know, 20 years ago when, when I was uh, getting ready to take him home. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So how did you get out of New York and move up to Westchester? Well, I, I've had a, you know, I hate the way this sounds, but the reality is I've had a second house for a long time. Mm -hmm. Little houses, Catskills out in the Hamptons for a while. And then I had this house in the Hamptons for a long time. The kids were getting older. I wasn't using it. So I sold it and I felt like I couldn't breathe, mm -hmm. uh, you know, 
and just in the city and then COVID hit and then with the um, strike and work was sort of not something I could grasp hold of. And um, I needed to not be in the city for a long time. And I don't think I was listening to myself. Uh, I grew up in the suburbs. And I guess as a young person, it's the place you want to leave. But for me, I just wanted to leave it because my work was in the city, mm -hmm. you know, and I was able to pop in to see stuff and be available for last minute auditions, all that stuff. Anyway, those days are over. And what I felt in the West Village, what I felt was old. You see a lot of young girls in yoga mats and people talking on their cell phones or, you know, with their ear I, I don't know. By the way, I don't notice any of them. The young girls really? in yoga mat. Yeah, no, I'm <laughs> you and every other man your age, all of my friends say, they just walk right by. Yep. I, yeah, and I start thinking, I remember that. I remember that whole thing and the excitement of a, the life up ahead and what am I gonna be and do. I'm in a very different chapter now. And uh I don't know. They don't feel like my people anymore. And I yeah. just and they, yeah. see when I wander the streets now, instead of looking at the girls in uh yoga with yoga mat, I'm just looking for a CVS. <laughs> that's all i want is just like is where's the the closest pharmacy is it 24 place. hour like if i can find a good 24 hour pharmacy then i just Upset. feel i i feel good that's like the I new the 24 hour pharmacy is the new girl with a yoga mat you listen I mean? yeah. I, it's a place we all get to but and yeah. you don't have to go very far thank god no no so I asked this question as someone who comes from a, a, a very dysfunctional family tell me about your crazy childhood uh, it was me and uh, three other kids and my two parents. And uh, my parents were raising us as very young parents. Uh, dad was in a Brooklyn Italian. Mom was as far from that as she could be, Scandinavian, Swedish. Comes from very heady, uh, uh, smart, somewhat troubled stock. And they were an odd couple. And... Uh, did the best they could to raise these four kids. But but it was a little bit, uh, you know, it was, it's funny. As I've gotten older, I am more sensitive about shit-talking my parents because that, mm. that's been for, you know, a good portion of my life to justify my own craziness. Well, my parents, you know, right. now it's like it's hard to raise kids. They were in their 20s. Mm. They had four kids. They didn't have enough money. And neither of them, you know, knew what they were doing, but who the hell does in their 20s? So right. it was a little bit, um, it and was you, pretty scrap. And your mother was an actress. She was a, she was an actress when she grew up in her teens. She did summer stock and then she got married and had kids. And then she started doing local theater, like community theater. And I used to go with her. And that's how I kind of got into this mm. whole thing. I thought it was the coolest thing in the whole world. Mm -hmm. And your dad was a jazz drummer. Well, he was. When he was a kid, he was a drummer. He played um, place like the Catskill circuit. And, uh, he actually played in the drums at a, uh, got a, at Provincetown Playhouse in New York city, uh, in the pit of a Kafka play. So yeah, they, they always had their, their, they were artists. Mm. They were artists abilities in a time and a place where there, they, there wasn't much prospect of following that, you know, mm -hmm. both of them did what they could while raising four kids mm -hmm. and you started out trying to maybe be a psychologist is that what you studied well no when i was in high school and you fill out all those things about what college you want to go to mm -hmm. um college was not a thing in my family so i didn't know where to go to ask and one of the teachers at school said to me 
well, I wrote down psychology as mm-hmm. what I thought I was going to study because I just thought it was interesting. It was something I was always interested in. And the teacher said, well, aren't you in all the plays here? Why don't you be an actress? And mm-hmm. I just thought, what does that mean? You know? Mm-hmm. And so I kind of just thought, all right, I'll study acting. I didn't even know. What, I had no idea what I was doing. Mm-hmm. But psychology was the only thing that deemed, uh, you know, possible as far as what to do with one's life. Mm-hmm. So it seemed like a foreign concept, even though mom was dabbling or doing acting? Yeah, she was dabbling, but mm-hmm. she had a job. Right. You know, she had a Monday to Friday, regular hours job. And then at night she would do her plays. And I thought that's how you do it. Mm-hmm. You know, I assumed that if it was anything I was going to do, that that's the realm in which I would do it. So you didn't see it as like a, something you can make a living from? No, I didn't well, know anybody that I, famous people did that. And I figured... That's, you know, they came from famous stock. And right. I, I don't remember what I thought about it, but that never occurred to me. Well, I mean, the truth is still today, most people don't make a living uh, from acting. Like, you don't go into uh, acting for the money. No, if that's your motivation, yeah. get out I'm gonna be quickly. Usually disappointed. And uh, you, you did a lot of waitressing, but when people ask you what you did while you were acting also, you would always say, I'm a waitress rather than I'm an actor. <laughs> Well, it felt presumptuous right? because if I'm acting, I'm not an actress, you know, and I just didn't, you know, I'm very aware of uh, grandiosity. Right. Maybe it was beaten into me as a kid. I have no idea. So I've always had an eye on, you know, keeping it real. (laughs) And I was a waitress. I was a waitress for many, many years. I wanted to be an actress, but I wasn't. So, yeah. Yeah. So is is that old joke like when... Someone says, what do you do? And they say, I'm an actor. Oh, really? What restaurant? Yes, exactly. Yeah, that was me for many, many, many years. So I, I don't know if you had a chance to see the comedian Gary Goldman's new comedy special, but speaking of family dysfunction, he opens up uh, with this, he just screams, mommy look. And the whole premise oh, of it, it's so brilliant. God. The whole premise of it is like, he said, if my mother just took her head out of her People magazine once, once <laughs> I wouldn't be standing on this stage, and so oh, that's I, so interesting. Yeah, and he said most comics they wouldn't exist if mommy just looked and paid attention once, and you know you're just screaming, mommy. I don't know, look, performers. Period. Yeah. So know? I was going to ask you, like, do you think performers going before the camera, like, just the whole you know ethos of it, is it, it a cry for attention in some way, based on childhood? I, it, I think it is. I mean, I, you know, I'm sure there are studies done or something mm-hmm. more efficient to be said about this, but for sure, it's, uh, yeah, notice me, you know, pay attention to me, I think is what it is, even though mm-hmm. it's under the guise of being another person and, you know, whatever, all that stuff. It is, yeah, for most of us who feel like you couldn't find a way to be seen, I guess. I mean, that's a layman's, right. uh, you know, guess at ab- about this, but it does seem to kind of, follow through yeah. yeah it's interesting it's it's interesting to think about why people would subject themselves to that kind of lifestyle loss of anonymity or right. all, all that um right. from a psychological standpoint uh, i think what's interesting is my dad uh you know as i said he grew up in brooklyn and he had these dreams of he was also a visual artist uh-huh. so his art is still all around my house and was always all around my house growing up he was always working on a painting or a sculpture or something I think there's a part of him that would have pursued that full time if it wasn't expected of him to to get married and have kids. Mm. Uh, he always dreamed of living in the city. He used to talk about, ah, I'm thinking I'm going to move to the city, get a little apartment. 
but he lived on Long Island his whole life after he started having kids. And my mom, I think, always wanted to pursue a career in acting, never did because of what was expected of her. And I think resented that to a rather large extent, whether or not she was aware of it. And so I took on my parents' dreams inadvertently Mm. to New York City because it was my dad. My dad would come see my apartments and we'd walk around the village. And I mean, he was glowing Mm. with pride for me. And uh, I would, you know, I was acting because mom didn't. Mm. And you think, so, was, was, so was it like a very conscious thing? Or is that something re- you reflect back on now? Is like, ah, that's really a major very reason why I did retrospect. Mm. Over the last five years, I lost both my parents. Mm. And I've had plenty of time to think about, like, do I still want to do these things? They're not here anymore. I don't need to live out their dreams. I mean, which I'm just in this moment, I'm realizing... Maybe that's why I felt it was okay to move back to the suburbs. Right. I don't have to press my dad with my apartments anymore. Right. You know well, what I mean? That's, that's interesting. That I've missed home, which mm-hmm. for me, is like trees and, and birds and driveways. You know what I mean? You don't miss the and, rats? Uh, I have rats here if you look hard enough. Really? That's mice. Suburban I mean, rats? Oh, yeah. Mice. I mean, in the, in the strip malls and stuff like that. Right. And now, you know, and then I thought, well, so I... I I don't know. I got way further in this acting career than I ever in a million years would have presumed or even deigned to, I'm not deigned, but even like, um, uh, I can't think of any words anymore that I ever could have imagined. Mm. And so I, I think, do I, do I still want to do this if I'm not like doing this for my mom in some way? So anyway, I've had a lot of time to think like, what the hell am I doing? Why am I doing these things? You know? Mm. So it's, well, it comes back to the parents very often. It's, Go all to our- it's all mommy and daddy. Mommy, look. Keeps the therapists in business. That's exactly what she says. And Thank so you, you went to purchase. You're part of the uh, the purchase mafia. Uh, Hal Hartley. You were in his first two films, Unbelievable Truth and Trust, which Adrian, my late wife, Adrian Shelley, w- was in. Yes. Trust. Yeah. What were Thank those you. days like? Because that was, I mean, you were young and you- yeah kind of fresh out of college, as was Hal. And uh, those movies kind of burst onto the scene and became this monumental, iconic cinematic experience. What was it like getting into those films so quickly out of college and starting your career? Just the way things rolled out. I mean, each step of the way has been as surprising as each next step or previous step. Like I I never knew what was going on except to say yes to things I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And these were people that were from my college. I didn't know Hal particularly well, but I certainly knew who he was, and he asked me to be in his movie, and the answer is yes. Early mm-hmm. on, the answer is yes. Right. To anything that isn't waitressing or answering phones, absolutely, mm-hmm. show up. And it was acting with friends from college. Mm-hmm. I mean, who would not do those things? Right. Uh, of course, when you're involved in a project, one tends to drink the Kool-Aid of that particular project. And I'm thinking, oh, wow, this seems good. This is rich. You have no idea, really, how it will be perceived in the larger um, scheme of things. You know, will anyone else respond to this? And I've, to this day, I've lost sight of that a little bit. I get involved in the stuff I'm doing and I care about it. And sometimes the rest of the world does and sometimes the rest of the world doesn't. And I've never been really good at knowing which is which until in retrospect, I, you know, which ones have gotten attention. So doing stuff with Hal was just fun. It was just fun. It was hard because I'd have to give up waitressing shifts and money was always an issue. Um, and other than that, it was about as much fun as you can have. You mm-hmm. know? And it, you started it, out with a film called Sweet Lorraine, which 
<clears throat> I think it was just a couple of years before uh, working with Hal. How did you get that first gig? Well, the, there were the things, the thing called the league auditions, that mm -hmm. there were certain schools that at the end of the four years of acting training, you got to do a, an audition in front of an audience full of like agents and directors and all these people. And it was from these league auditions, I got an audition for this movie, Sweet Lorraine. And so that's how that happened. And it was right the day after graduating college, I had to be on the set. And I thought, like, what is everybody talking about this being a hard career? I'm like rolling right from, you know, five years after that, I didn't do a thing but waitress. So um, it was a bit of a false start. But uh, that was some pretty great luck. And again, heaven it was heaven. Mm. I've met, I'm still in touch with them, still love. You've, you've done very well. You've made some great choices with the roles you've <laughs> taken. And I want to talk about them in, in a bit. But I want to ask a couple of macro questions first. Like, where do you think that the TV business today seems to be exploding? Is that how yeah. you see it? Like, is that the place to be now? Oh, gosh. I think it is just because there's more work to be done. I mean, I think we are in a place where there's too much being done. And I feel I can't stay on top of the shows I need to, I want to watch because friends mm. are working or wrote them or whatever. There isn't time. There's not enough time in the day to watch all of it. And a lot of it is really uninteresting to me, I'm afraid. Um, then there's, you know, fantastic stuff also, like uh, both beef and mm -hmm. bear. Mm -hmm. and uh, the bear and uh you know session all the other great stuff that's getting noticed there is great stuff happening there and i can't think of the last movie that was out i don't know where i where i wished i had been a part of it mm -hmm. you know like if you're not nicole kidman you're kind of there's not a ton out there uh right. to be done movie wise right now you know and if she would just take a break for god's sake <laughs> Uh, give some of us a chance. Well, we happen these. to have Nicole right here. Nicole. Oh my God, Nicole, listen. I have two tickets for you and your hubby for a cruise yeah. for five years. But there's, I don't know, I, I, there's not a ton out there movie-wise that's terribly interesting to me. Mm -hmm. The thing is, I, I can never look ahead and say, this is what I want. This is what should happen. I'm always uh, broadsided. Mm -hmm. In terms of the, the stability or lack thereof of acting, like you've been on some amazing shows. You're on an amazing show now, Bupkiss. They end. What is that feeling like when something ends and you're waiting for the next one if you don't already have it lined up? How much of that plays into your personal life in terms of is it stressful? Is it concerning? Or is it like, okay, sirrah, sirrah, you know, whatever happens. Well, I'm going to work. I've always worked. I'm going to work. Something right. will land. I was more cut out for a date for a a regular job because hmm. I like routine. I like know what's going to, I like knowing what's going to happen in a year. Um, I think there might be some sort of other, you know, forces at work that I, my life is so not like that. Uh, from the early days, it was terrible. It was just terrible to not know what's coming next. Hmm. Uh, stress invoking and, and, you know, addiction, uh, nourishing, you know, right. um, but as time has gone on and one grows older and continues therapy and for me, other modes of, uh, you know, self-discovery, uh, you learn to sit still and to kind of trust that something will come. Um, you know, and I'm not going to lie. There's a part of it that's financial. Mm -hmm. Being on television, you can do pretty well financially and you can coast for a little while. 
So the, for me, the panic is largely financial because I grew up, we grew up not having enough money and it's something that is in my bones. Like I still worry about it. And I have people that I trust that tell me, you're okay. You don't, right. that's okay if you buy two of those or whatever, you know, like right. I can't quite shake this feeling of being worried about money. But as I've gotten older, I've learned to, the second thought being, no, that's right. I'm okay. I'm okay. Mm. And I have a life outside of my work now, mm -hmm. you know, which grown roots. My kids being part of it, living in the suburbs is part of it. Mm -hmm. Friendships, you know. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and I, I, I uh, and yes, there's a part of me that believes I always will work again. Mm -hmm. Wrong, but the fact that I believe it helps me go through the days. Mm -hmm. and, and how much of you, do you think aging factors into that? And also having trauma in your life and things that teach you that it could always be worse, you know? Like, I right. find that I went from being, as a younger man, stressed about everything all the time. And now I'm like firmly in the not giving two fucks phase of my life. And yeah. it's so liberating to just, oh, God, yeah. you know, those two factors, having been through Absolutely. trauma and aging factor in a lot for you, where you're Absolutely. at now. As time has passed and we've gone through trauma as a culture, as a world, right. you know. You've had a lot of time. One has had a lot of time to think about. I mean, it sounds stupid because it's the shit you've been hearing your whole life. What's really important, you know, right. at the end of the day is, is learning that, let's say I have three hours coming up that aren't scheduled. I can do that now. I can sit. I can read. Mm. I can take a nap. That was the worst thing possible back in the day. If I didn't, if I had time that was unstructured and, I, you know, the, the sense of I have to do something con constructive with it or, you know, working towards my career or exercising or going to an AA meeting or whatever it was that I was sort of obsessing about at the time. Now I'm realizing it's actually more important that I can actually just sit mm. and look out my window and it's snowing. This was not a quiet place I had before. Do you and feel bad yes, for kids who, because of the phones, like if they've got three hours, they're on that fucking phone for three hours. Like, there's no so, more staring out the window and contemplating the meaning of isn't. life, you know? There isn't. And if you take the phones away, they, it's straight up panic. Right. I mean, that's a whole other, I, it upsets me no end that yeah. this, these kids don't have coping mechanisms. And uh, without these things, they really don't function. And I think it's, uh, I don't know, we've screwed ourselves in a rather major way. Yeah, no, I but agree. I, I agree totally. I think, you know, I would like to think that other changes will happen as a result. Uh, that may not be quite as horrible. I don't know. That may help people function. I really don't know. I don't know. But um, it is a scary, it's a scary place to be, especially as you're raising these kids, like to try to teach. They weren't raised the same way I was. So I can't tell them, well, this is what worked for me. This, it's the, the whole playing field is, is different now. Yeah, they, they don't like the I trudged a mile and a half in the snow conversation. Not care less. <laughs> but you know what? I couldn't either when my father would say, right. I used to walk across the Brooklyn Bridge. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> My son at one point literally said to me, Dad, that's your story. I don't really care. Oh, my God. Because <laughs> they don't care. Like, he said, like, I'm not growing up in that world. Like, you, right. he says, you say it to me as if, like, I'm supposed to, it's supposed to have this deep awakening moment. And he goes, I, I, I don't, you know, I, I get on the subway to go to school, like, whatever. Like, I can't identify with any of this shit. So just don't right. waste your time. He didn't say it mean spirited. Like it was, it was just like, what are you doing? Do you understand? This is just falling completely flat. 
Yes. You have to wonder if that's exactly the conversation each of us had with our parents however many years ago. Oh, yeah. Well, the the kids today have it good because when we were young and we tuned out our parents, we had to figure out a way how to visually mask it. They could Ah. just like look at their phones while we're talking and they're just like, fuck him. I'm tuning him out. Like it. And they, they have right. this this prop. They have a prop. We didn't have a prop. And they're also allowed to talk about their feelings. Yeah. I mean, they are encouraged to. Yeah, we boy, they, they've got a lot of feelings, they, don't they? They take advantage of that. There's no question about it. But if I said to my dad, Dad, I'm completely uninterested in what you're having. I mean, there's no, those words would just never come out of my mouth. So. Yeah, no, I would, I would be wearing the back of his wrist on my face if I said that to my father. They, they'd that be was, like an imprint on my face. That's right. <laughs> Um, so you mentioned plenty of time. So we had COVID. That was two and a half or so years. And then how did you deal with the strike? What was your strike life like? It was much like the COVID situation. You know, I learned to be still and do other things. And uh, I was, I worked a little bit during COVID, which was no fun. Uh, I mean, I, I work I, because it's work. And I need to make money, but I also work because it's really fun. I love what I do. But COVID was really not fun. I mean, everybody's with all the, the masks and the things and you stand over here and there is no video village where you can all stand around and make jokes. And I mean, all of that camaraderie stuff that I learned to love so much was just not there. And it really did make me wonder why I was doing this anymore. But I've worked since then. And so it is still, it is still something I love. The actual acting part and some of the you know, bantering, fun people stuff. It's still something that is still something I love. And I was between jobs during this strike anyway. Like I knew I had things that were coming back. So, mm-hmm. I mean, my, it's the nature of my life. It's not consistent. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was not terribly traumatizing, although it was, a, it was certainly weird that nobody was working. And I spent a lot of time with friends of mine who weren't working and I take on their troubles because I care about them. And so, I mean, that was no fun, but I, for me, you know, it's all so unstable anyway. Yeah. You know, the life of an actor is very unstable. And I would imagine during the strike, that level of uncertainty and lack of income and and just the setback, it's it's very stressful. Indeed. You were on what most people consider the best show ever, The Sopranos. How did you get that role. I was doing Oz mm-hmm. for HBO at the time and friends were talking about the script. You know, we were always in touch, like, oh, I'm going in for this thing. And I'd heard the name Sopranos and I thought it was about singers. Well, I only peripherally knew about it and I figured I wouldn't get called for it. And I was working. And then I did. And I read it and it's this Italian American wife. And I thought, well, I know exactly who this is, uh, but I won't get it because they'll you know, uh, casting is pretty uh, predictable. They'll get mm-hmm. someone who maybe reads more like that, has played more of those parts. So in the midst of, you know, busy working and stuff, I went in and did the audition at, I feel like it was Hotel Mayflower, which was on Central Park West, mm-hmm. in, I don't know, 60s or something like that. And uh, met David Chase and Chris Albrecht and Georgianne Walken. Didn't know who any of them were. I had a couple of scenes. I read opposite Johnny Ventimiglia, who ended up playing Artie Bucco. Mm-hmm. He was playing Tony Soprano. I did the scenes. And they said, hold on a second. Then they said, we have another scene we'd like you to read. And I was like, you know, so I did a cold reading of some other scene, which all of it felt fine. There's nothing like knowing you're not going to get something. You know what I mean? It's the way to walk into every job. Right. Uh, and 
and they were very nice and I left. And uh, I think it was the next day they called and said that I got this part. Wow. Uh, because they had been casting for mm-hmm. really long. I said my friends had been talking about it and I think they had someone else in mind for the role. Um, I mean, I've heard little bits and pieces. It's not the kind of thing you necessarily go out and ask somebody. So was somebody else going to do this? But, you know, the rumor was that somebody else had, they had someone else in mind and then decided on me at the very last minute with one audition. Crazy. Hmm. How that worked. And all I knew was I, as soon as I realized I got the job, I called my broker and said I wanted to move because I was in a teeny apartment and I was able to pay off my student loan from the uh, pilot. Wow. Which was huge, huge. I've read I mean, that. All you know about as the pilot at first, of mm-hmm. course. You know? And when you read this script the first time, did you have any idea that this was something that was going to be iconic or was just like, ah, oh, it's, a, it's a good script. I'd love to be in this series. Well, no. Um, um, I, I liked it. Liked how it read. It felt like some, like the way people talk, which was always great. Yeah, I read that you said I grew up around that accent and then spent four years in college getting rid of it. That's it. That's exactly the case. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, it felt so easy to me. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I, it, it was fun to do. But as I said, uh, the things that that I find fun to do are oftentimes because I've never done it before, mm-hmm. some sort of interesting accent I get to do. So it's, it's somewhat self-gratifying. Uh, so I don't know ever how the thing will be received by the rest of the world. I do remember at some point when the pilot was finished, I got a video of it. And my parents watched it. And I remember my parents saying, I, I think this is really good. This mm-hmm. is like really good. To an extent that they hadn't really done before. I don't, not that they'd seen stuff I had done, but based on what's on TV. And I remember thinking, well, that was sort of a weird reaction from my parents. Um, but as far as I'm concerned, I don't know anything. I never do. I never do. I'm afraid. Did they cast you first or James Gandolfini first? Jim was already set. Mm-hmm. At first, it was another actor they were mm-hmm. going to go with. And I think, and they were going to stu- um, networks who were really, uh, who had all turned it down and stuff. And then I think Jim came on in this last incarnation. And then I, you know, so I was after that. Mm-hmm. And, and what was it like working with him? I mean, he was clearly in, uh, for real life, as my granddaughter says, um, <laughs> very un-Tony Soprano-like as a human being, right? Yeah, he was. He was a, you know, a Jersey guy, very self-deprecating, um, very humble, funny, complicated, you know, but it took me a long time to know that stuff. I, you know, I, I don't think I do it on purpose, but I don't tend to, I don't want to do a lot of socializing. I sort of like, let's just do the work, you know? Mm-hmm. And then if something about when you, I don't understand how it works, but I think it's that if you become friends with the real person, it's harder to kind of pretend for lack of a better word that he's your husband. Right. So the time spent with Jim was mostly on the set acting, you mm-hmm. know? Uh, and again, I don't, I don't have any idea about how I work or any of that stuff. But in retrospect, I think that's what it is. Is if I, it's more fun with I've looked into this face, and all he ever was was my husband. Mm. And uh, his death just obviously came out of nowhere. Was that just a complete slam when that happened? Utter 
utter slam, yes. And I started getting calls from people on the crew and stuff calling me in case I hadn't found out yet. And yeah, it hit me in a, in a, it was a subterranean way. The way I felt on the outside is it suddenly became a very public thing and I was being asked to talk about it. And, but I didn't realize like uh, a very big punch. I remember the first, <laughs> I sold my car. I was like, you know what? I need to buy, get rid of this and buy. I mean, I was doing weird, big mm. things that make sense, like trying to kind of, I don't know what, to quiet the turbulence or something. I really don't know. But um, I would imagine, like weird- you, you say that, you know, you you sort of keep some kind of distance because of the work and it makes sense to do that. But I would also imagine that if you're on a show for five, six, seven, eight, nine years with somebody and you're playing uh, his wife, there's got to be some conflation, like some morphing really? where emotionally after, especially after all those years, where that all gets so blurred. For sure. Well, we had been done shooting for a while. And it's not like I had seen a ton of Jim. Mm-hmm. And while you're working on it, yes, it is, you know, it's a weird thing that we actors do. It's not, you're not pretending. In fact, you really are using all of your actual right. emotions and your actual physical being to partake in this relationship. So while you're, so we were working together, I think for 10 years. And during that time, I think also if this had happened while we were shooting, I think my reaction would have been, very different because as soon as I, I'm done with work, it starts the, 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 I start pulling plugs out. You know what I mean? It gets less blurry. Uh, mm-hmm. It gets less blurry with time. Uh, but it's, it would be like finding out an ex of yours that's right. something terrible. You did love them and you did care. I mean, you knew they had a life after you. So there was, it was more like that. And I got some of the most astonishing emails from people like, I can't imagine what you're going through and all this stuff that was clearly meant for Jim's real wife, which I started doing. I started sending them to, to his real wife, you know, cause people know him as my husband. It was, sure. It's a complicated thing that we did and that people do and that they watch every night. And it seems real, you know, it's very, 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 very strange. The reality is I didn't know Jim terrifically well. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't do a ton of socializing with him. Uh, I adored him because of that. Mm-hmm. I was able to keep a safe distance from, I know, you know, his internal life was was complicated and turbulent like many of ours. But yeah, it, you know, and to this day, it's still weird. I mean, it still freaks me out a little bit that that happened. But uh, also, had this been my first job, I also know that, that I have had a lot of boyfriends that I was opposite you know, working with mm-hmm. and early on in one's career, it happens because it feels real. It feels completely real. Right. And as you get older, you realize, oh God, no, that's right. This is my job. <laughs> this is home. Oh, you know, acting. It's a long time. This is happening. Takes yeah. a long time. Mm-hmm. A lot of young actors fall in love with their co-stars, and as you get older, you learn uh, the boundary thing that I find working so much more intense with someone when I know there's a boundary that at the end of the day, I go to my guy, he goes to his girl or whatever, and and the boundaries are clear. It's such so a I fascinating guess. thing to think about how different actors deal with that. But I, I agree with you. Like, I think that compartmentalizing thing, like if I was an actor, I, that's how I would have to do it because it seems like it gets too complicated, messy the, yeah. the other way, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you, when you walk down the street, do people scream, hey, Carmela, they do that still? 
less, we less ha- than they. We had, uh, you know, I started this with the, my team here. We started this podcast recently called Jew 2. Just three of us are Jews, and we sit around, and we talk to a non-Jew. <laughs> so we had uh, recently, the, our second episode was with Severio Guerra. I don't know if you know him, uh, Mocha Joe. I from, love uh, him so dearly. And he's an upstate, he's an upstate guy. And uh, he's, he's so funny. And I was telling him that we, somehow we got to talking about Abe Vigoda. And I, I said, like, back in the 80s, I was walking around the Upper West Side where I used to live, and I'd see him all the time. And I, I just, once, I was like, fish! And Severio was like, fish? Abe Vigoda's probably thinking, like, I'm fucking Tessio in The Godfather, and you're calling me fish? Right. <laughs> <laughs> so I always wonder, like, when you get so identified from a specific role, if actors always you know, have that thing inside, like, that's what you're calling me? Like, do you like uh-huh. being known forever? in a big way is Carmela, or is that a chapter that you wish people would just put in the past and let's move on? Let's, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm also Nurse Jackie. I'm on Bupkis. I do all kinds of things, movies, all kinds of series. I'm in a terrifically settled place with all that stuff. Like mm-hmm. the reality is I have gotten to support myself by acting. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, I've gotten to be in a show like The Sopranos that has had the effect it's had is is the quality that it is. I am nothing, and I, this is the truth, I am nothing but grateful. Mm. If I'm walking down the street and someone wants to yell, Carmela, I mean, who is luckier than that? Right. Uh, I have nothing but gratitude. That's the God's honest truth. Um, so I don't care what they call me. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. I played a lot of parts, and if that's the one this person has seen, I, I'm lucky, 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 lucky. I'm not waitressing anymore, period. Yeah. Um, what's your, where, where are you on the whole series finale thing? I mean, it's like, people are There's so... There's a lot that went on during Sopranos that I didn't understand from an intellectual place. That's mm-hmm. one of the reasons I liked it. I knew the writers were smarter than me. That uh, I knew what felt right to say and to do as this character, as far as how it fit into the larger zeitgeist of the show. Mm-hmm. I didn't always know, but I knew I was in good hands. I sort of feel like that must be what it's like to be a good parent. Like you just, you, the, the kid just worries about themselves and they know that, um, you know, someone's got an eye on making sure the house isn't on fire. Or right, I don't know. Right. But that's how I felt about this show. So when I read the finale, I was like, I, I don't, I'm not sure I get it. And I actually looked to make sure I had all the pages because I sort of thought there must be pages missing. And then there were like other scripts going around with different endings. It was, a, I knew that whatever it was, it was hush hush. And that I was going to shoot whatever was in front of me. Hmm. Last scene, I'm sitting at a place with uh, my husband and we're eating onion rings. And there's a reason that that's the last scene. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure I understand it. And uh, I've heard David Chase discuss this, uh, or maybe I've heard secondhand what he has said about, like, Tony's life goes on. We're just not privy to it anymore. Right. And yeah. uh, I, uh, upon you know, reflection, that's freaking brilliant. There's nothing else he could have done that would have made everybody happy. Well, it's like when you ever and have it, people say things like, well, I wonder what happens after the movie well, ends. Like, it, nothing happens because it's, it's over. They would be like, I understand, <laughs> it's, it's I fake. understand, but what really happened? It's like, they yelled cut, I got in my yeah. car, and I went home. Right. What happened? That, the idea that people struggle with that is a thrill. Well, the, they believe us. It's interesting because me. I think when people are so in love with a series, I think no matter how it ends, they're going to be upset and disappointed because they're losing. Right. I mean, I remember when Succession ended, I was like, fuck, what, my life has no meaning anymore. Like, Where's Trudens? <laughs> Where are my friends going? Yeah. I get it. I'm not going to hang it. out with Roman anymore. And like, what's, what's yeah. going to... 
Um, and then the other thing too is like years later, we're still talking about that ending. So in a way, yeah. it is kind of brilliant the way it ended, yeah. like the way it made people think. What else think. could he and, have done? That would have been the reaction. Yeah. I mean, like, okay, so somebody comes in and was like, hey, Tony, should shoot him. Like, I could have written right. that. You know what I mean? Like, how how right. unique and creative would that have been, right? So, but I think that, that's, that's what a lot of people wanted, I think, because people need closure yeah. on a lot of, they on need a lot of closure. things. And they didn't get, and I still will occasionally be walking down the street and have someone say to me, what the fuck was that? And I'll look at them like, the fucking ending. Like, I, you guys, I don't know, I'm just an actor. I was... Yeah, get a life. Nurse anyway. Jackie. Well, Nurse Jackie, which is a show you, you won your fourth Emmy for. You had three from Sopranos. That was a dark, troubled character. Was that fun to play? Was that hard to play? Well, the original script was called Nurse Mona. Uh, my friend Matt Malloy, who was an actor, lived in Venice. And his next door neighbor, I can't think of his name. He said, my next door neighbor wrote a script he wants you to look at, which are some of the scariest words in the English language oftentimes. Because you want to be polite and read, but for the most part, you're like, mm, I, I you know, feel I'm you. A skateboarding mail order bride or whatever. You mm -hmm, know what I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, Matt said to me, but I think this is really good. It, uh, oh, God, it just, the name was gone. Um, so I read it. It was called Nurse Mona, and it was very different from what we shot. Mm -hmm. uh, she was, she had pow like uh, sensory powers. Like she was able to see like an aura around. It was very, very different. Mm -hmm. And there were no drugs. And she kept talking about being at home with her husband, blah, blah, blah. And the last scene, she's, you see her, she's eating dinner. And then the camera comes back and you realize she's eating alone and there's nobody there with her, that there is no husband. Anyways, completely different. Over time, I found out they wanted to make it a half hour comedy, which seemed completely impossible. And then they threw drugs and alcohol into the mix, which was also not thrilling to me. Mm -hmm. I don't see how you mix comedy with that, especially mm -hmm. in my own personal experience. Right. Uh, but little by little, with lots of conversations and work working through stuff, that's what it ended up being. And um, yeah, it was it was dark sometimes, but it was also funny. And I did so love the people I worked with. The work envi environment was the best I've known mm. to this day. Uh, and... I loved being at work every day, so that that's not nothing. Hmm. Merritt Weaver was so good, so good. Was it? Yeah, I mean, yeah. and the whole cast was great. It was just such a. I loved that show, and talk about endings, the finale, like such a powerful ending. My God, a really incredible show. And for people listening, if you haven't seen it, you really should, because uh, not only is Edie amazing in it, but it's an amazing show, and it's a bunch of seasons, so you can really dive in get lost in there and, for a bit and yeah. get lost in there for sure so given the fact that you have dealt with addiction yourself that i would seem presented uh, a bit of a challenge when the drugs and the alcohol got introduced into the into the uh, narrative of that show how did you make that not challenging in a way well, first of all, I'm obsessed now with finding the writer of the original pilot, Evan Dunsky. Evan, Evan there Dun you go, buddy. Evan Dunsky. I'm going to say it as every going to throw it into every sentence now. Uh, Evan Dunsky wrote Nurse Mona. Um, well, I was a, a long distance from my own using days, which mm -hmm. were back in the 90s, mm -hmm. and I'd been sober for 20 something years, and uh, you know, always needing for me to keep in touch with sober people. To, you know, check in if something seemed difficult. It felt far enough away from me that I, I felt safe. Hmm. Like I never went home and thought, God, I'd love a drink. I mean, I couldn't 
maybe because it was so sort of decrepit, uh, it, it made me happier that I was sober and it's not a part of my life at all. So it was, it was a source of strength in a way, like to, sure. to, to play that role. It was a source of constantly reminding myself what it would be like right. if I was still using. Mm. And grateful I am that the hardest part, getting sober, was behind me. Mm -hmm. And then in 21, you played uh, my girl, Hillary. <laughs> who I'm still with, by the way, for anybody out there who cares. Yes, I hear you. I hear you. I hear you. How was, I mean, I know you're very political and I know you love Hillary. Like, was that a daunting role in terms of Completely. fearing Completely. like, oh my God, am I going to harm this woman with this yes. performance? Well, you know what? It was like a, a strange maternal reaction I had when they called and said, listen, he's thinking of you for Hillary Clinton. My first thought was, I got to take her and mm. make her safe. Mm. You know what I mean? Interesting. Fear that someone else would get a hold of it and and uh, want to do like, I don't know, like a very, I don't know, specific recreation of what's of, of her physical traits, like making sure they walk like her and sound like her, which sometimes you end up losing the essence of the person. Right. With when that becomes the priority. And, uh, you know, I made it very clear to Ryan Murphy that I didn't want to, um, that if it's a hit job of any kind, I'm not interested. And he made it clear that that was not the case. And so, yes, of course, I, uh, uh, all right. So Clive Owen, early on when we first met, he said to me, well, thank God nobody really knows these people, so we're okay. <clears throat> and then we both were like, what the hell am I doing? trying to portray this person. And he and I could not have been more different in the ways we mm -hmm, went about it. Mm -hmm. He spent hours poring over a lot of Bill's speeches, getting every mannerism exact. It was, it was really astonishing to see how, how good he was at this. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't really know how to do that kind of stuff. And I don't know that I, I knew it wouldn't feel as effective to me if I did this thing about imitating her. I really just kind of wanted to get the idea of who she was. Talked to Ryan Murphy, said there's a lot of different styles of acting in my stuff, and somehow it tends, you know, it sort of works mm -hmm. in large. So I kind of got the okay, and that's the way I went about it. But yes, it was hugely daunting. And mm. who the hell would want a chapter like that to be portrayed on television? Right. You know, I, so it would, yeah, I was of many minds about doing it. Um, you guys ever talked about it? No, mm -hmm. I have never met her. I met her husband, I met Hillary. Mm -hmm. uh, she doesn't hate me. Mm -hmm. That's all. Probably say. not. Nothing but respect for her. Mm -hmm. and, you know, fundraising for her, and we'll continue should mm -hmm. there ever be a reason. But, um, but no, I haven't spoken to her about it. And just to digress for a second, since we're on politics, what do you make of where we're at right now in this country? I, you know what, I can't. I haven't turned on CNN for a while because I'm at a, I'm at a troubling place where I used to feel like I knew what, what I would do to fix everything. And I don't know that anymore. Um, I don't know how we got here. I don't know the country I live in. I don't know the people who inhabit the country I live in. I'm afraid of them. Uh, I do not feel like I am like them. I am troubled by the mental illness uh, involved in people who would want this to continue. People who cheer. Um, who, people who cheer on rape. Cheer. Who cheer? That's right. And a rapist. Yeah. Who would still want this man to run our country. I don't understand it. I just, and I believe that they believe that he's the guy. Oh, they, I, they believe it. And yeah. that's the troubling part. Like how far 
have we gone into the darkness where that is the case? The problem is so insipid and so, so uh, deep. I wouldn't know how to fix it. I mean, I, you know, there's only one answer to this whole thing. And uh, no one wants to actually be wishing that on anyone. And so it's a very bad place to be right now. So I'm, I'm disengaging for a bit. Are you referring, my, are you referring to, the, to, the, to the big Mar-a-Lago in the sky? I'm not even going to say it, but I can Which, think Which, I mean, it. it could be, you know, natural causes. Like it a, could be whatever. years old, and he eats nothing but fast food burgers. How the fuck is this happening? Well, I can, I'm not a doctor, but I can answer that question, okay? Oh, all right. The answer yeah. to that question is he is a fucking sociopath. He internalizes nothing. See, we get strokes, and we get heart attacks, and we die because we, because we internalize everything. Right. That's right. He doesn't. He's he's all id. So it's just it's just vomited out. I think you might be right. So he can eat the I cheeseburgers. Right. He can. Yeah. Diet Cokes. He can he can live like a big fat orange Jesus. And and he's probably going to live to be 150. I mean, well, I mean, for the four hours that he sleeps. But yes, uh, you're right. The rest of us would feel guilty and worry about the people that we've hurt and wonder if there was another way to have said something. You're absolutely yeah, right. I was watching CNN or MSNBC last night and they were showing a clip of him in 15 or 16 saying something stupid. And then they showed him saying like the same thing today. And, and I hated to say it, but I said to myself, dude hasn't aged in like nine, 10 years. He, he kind of still looks exactly the same, especially when he's wearing, literally wearing the exact same clothes. He just literally looks the same. And then you start to think about, okay, well, Biden's aged so much in the late, like you get to understand this narrative that's out there of like Trump, sure. even though he's three years younger, is so much younger than Biden. And so, but he, he, I don't know what this fucking secret is. Like the guy is unbelievable. He is unbelievable. Right, yeah. There is something about not caring. Yeah. He does not care. Rests off the body for sure. When he's stressed, he lashes out. If he's in court for defamation and he's stressed, he defames more in court. Yeah. Who would and do that? And somehow it's allowed to continue. Yeah, it is a How strange... How the is allowed to continue on. It is, it is, I wish I was living 100 years from now. I hope anybody's living 100 years from now, but, uh, and, and people have some distance from this and I can read about it. What the fuck was going on? Yeah. What actually went on during this crazy time in our country? Um, so let's talk about my favorite show in such a long time, Bubkiss. I love that show. I love Pete Davidson. Great. I kind of feel like, like I feel like a father to him. I don't even know him. He's just a dude on a TV Brings screen. That out. And I wanted to ask right. you, like, as his mother, do you, have do you start to feel protective in that way, or or mm -hmm. is it or is this just an acting gig? No, <laughs> no. I mean, I have a son who's nineteen. Mm -hmm. I, uh, which I'm, you know, uh, is beyond in and of itself is the fact that i just said that is <clears throat> shocking to me but so i tend to go that place i go to that place with with young men uh immediately and he's a boy who who uh i don't know you want a mother there's no question about right. it as an aside his real mother is extraordinary mm. she adores him uh, I was at an event where he was speaking and she was in front of me and she had her phone up like, it was Pete Davidson. I mean, you go online, you can see him saying anything in the world. And his mom is taking a picture of his, her son speaking on stage. She adores him. He's got like a really, really good, solid family. And, you know, uh, what do you call further out family, you know, like cousins, aunts, uncles. 
so he doesn't, you know, he doesn't need me. And for that, I'm grateful because I, you know, I have my own kids. But yes, mm -hmm. I do quickly go to a place of uh, wanting to take care of this kid. Why do you think you know, people, I mean, I know why I love Pete Davidson. I love his whole story. I just love it all. But like, he's so fucking lovable. And is it because he is so honest with his life and how messed up it is? There's no pretense. There's no airs about him. He's dealing with issues that our children deal with as a young right. person. Like, uh, But also he has all these women, female admirers that, you know, he dates these incredible people. Like he is kind of a phenomenon in a way. Yeah. Yes, he is. And I think you might be hitting the nail on the head there that he he seems more confused about his success than anybody else. You know what I mean? Mm. He's, he's sort of just riding this wave and makes jokes about, well, of course I'm going to make the show about my life. That's all I have. You know, I, I have nothing else to offer, you know? Right. Uh, and he is humble and mm. self-deprecating. And those are really lovable qualities in someone when you don't feel like you have to get past their ego to get to the real person. He's, all, he's right there in front of you the whole time. And very accessible. So, um, yeah, that's a man. He's very, he's just completely lovable. And this show has like such incredible New York actors. That's got to be really satisfying to work with people like Bobby Cannavale and, and Joe yeah. Pesci. Pesci is amazing on right. that show. Romano, Romano yeah. And, uh, Brad Garrett. Yeah. Phenomenal bunch of people, uh, which was a large part of why I wanted to do it at all. Mm -hmm. These are people I, for the most part, never worked with before. It's not a world where I am thought of. Mm -hmm. It's not my. It's not my crowd, really. And I was sure someone had made a mistake when they had asked me to play this part. I was like, I'm just going to show up and see if I find out that they meant some very, you know. Uh, Do you know if you? I mean, were you sought out by Pete himself, or were you just part of? The, what do you think he wanted you in particular as his mom? Well, I, you know, I'm sure Carmela played into mm -hmm. that. You know, a sort of. Um, suburban uh, uh ethnic mom you know uh I i'm guessing it was by i'm sure it wasn't nurse jackie that made him think oh i want her as my mom right so, um, um i'm guessing that's what it is so i never really we never had a conversation about it but um and i said something early on about i forget what it was i forget uh and then he said oh go again no do whatever you want i don't you you can change your name. You can do do an accent, whatever you however you want to do this. I was like, I had this. It was you know, it's completely adorable. Like he just wanted me to do it, and I I don't know. It's a good it's a good ego stroking way to start a job. Mm -hmm. you know? And speaking of starting a job, I'm, the tone of that show, I find so awesome. The very very first scene in the very first episode, you catch him whacking off while he's immersed in virtual reality porn, which right. is just genius um uh -huh. was that was that in the script like when you got the and you saw that and you were like okay first we can do this my agents were like if you can get past the first scene <laughs> you may you may be interested in this so they they i think they thought <clears throat> there was a good chance i i uh wouldn't want to go beyond that but um it just sets the show well, off so the series then, you know it you know in a minute what you're gonna get and that is the right. That's what every series should do and do well. And it, and it uh -huh. does it. That scene just does it. So it tells you who Pete is. It tells you who you are. It tells you about the relationship between you two. Right. And it just, right. it's such a, an amazing launch point. 
I agreed about that too. It says a lot about their relationship that it's a mother son. And that, that seems to be the primary relationship in that household. Uh, he means the world to her. He is her whole world in a way. Her husband's gone. And, you know, you live that closely with someone and you see shit and you go through stuff and, you know, mothers go through some weird stuff with their kids. They're watching them become people in right. front of their eyes. Sometimes it's a little shocking and it's a little gross and it's a lot of, you know, it's lots of other things, but that's part of the job. <laughs> you put them into adulthood, whatever that means. So I don't know. I, I, I was not as shocked by it as people thought I would be. You know? mm -hmm. And this show has been renewed for another season, right? Congrats yeah. on that. It's, it's a great Thank show. You. And uh, what's coming up for you? What do you got going on next? Well, that is coming up. Um, there were a bunch of plays I was looking at. Uh, but I live in Westchester now. You know, it used to be like I'd ride my Vespa up to the rehearsal place. And then, you know, I'd be gone in the evenings for a while. Now, you know what? I, I may have to sell my, my Vespa. Because, you know, the roads around here are zoomy and and uh, the car, people drive quick. There's, it's not a Vespa kind of environment. So for me to do a play, how the hell do I do that? I don't know. It's going to be, it's going to have to be something I really, really want to do and I make a million dollars at, which will never happen. So yeah. I'd imagine it's a little different, like coming down from Westchester for, for like a reading for a tape. That's exactly right. <laughs> I mean, if it's a show and I'm working around the clock, maybe I'll, you know, do a hotel or something. But yeah, I don't know. But it's really made me think about what I, what I'm going to do next, but uh, we're mm -hmm. also in the process of hopefully doing Nurse Jackie again. Uh, oh, there's wow. been the talk of a reboot. Wow. But talk is talk until it's something else. So who the hell knows? But um, I would be certainly interested in that. Uh, if, if, as it says, it will involve bringing back lots of people that I love. Mm. Hey, that would again, be awesome. I never, I mean, Did you I ever want to direct? Do you? No. Have, no. Not, it's not my thing. You're one of those I'm actors, huh? The ones who don't, don't want to direct. I, I like I like one of three. I think mm -hmm. I uh, I like what I do. I mean, I hope I get to do more stuff, more mm -hmm. varied. I as I get older, I have way more of myself available. Mm -hmm. Just from an acting standpoint, unfortunately, there seem to be less interest in knowing about that. <laughs> as one gets older, you don't find a ton of stuff about you know women who aren't all about their kids anymore. You know. Mm -hmm. Things are shifting. They shift all the time, and I never know what's coming at me next, and I don't mind that. Well, I'm sure it's going to be a lot of good stuff. The last thing I want to mention is your work with uh, animals. Um, I know you're a dog person. Yeah. I'm a dog yes. person. You got me to fork over cash for the ASPCA. I mean, those commercials. Wow. Yeah. Sophie and I sit together, and we like watch TV, and they come on, and we're like, oh, God, it's on again. I have to turn it on myself. Too hard. You got a uh, ASPCA 2021 Puppy Advocate and Protector Award, so congratulations. For your, for your... <laughs> How many people have that? That's what I'm going to ask you. Fuck the Oscar. Uh, That's the one you want. Yeah, this, this is the stuff you should really be working for. Uh, I don't know. I've always loved animals, and uh, when people found out about it, I was approached by various animal organizations, and then you learn stuff, and um, uh, I do a lot of work with PETA. Mm -hmm. Unbelievable what goes on that we don't know about. Uh, and once you start to know about it, you're like, Jesus H. Christ, how can this be happening? What can I do? And so that's where I'm at now. I mean, we're given these weird platforms and, you know, uh, if I can use it to do something that needs doing and it's something I genuinely care about, then for heaven's sake, why not? You know, mm. I want to end on a quote that I found about your work with animals. 
quote, I believe this is at the base of everything bad in society. You can bring it back to cruelty to animals. If you don't have respect for the life of any kind, it will manifest in more obvious ways. And I, I could not agree more. I, that's why, you know, to end on Trump, the guy doesn't have a dog. Okay. That's... Case in point right there. Well, Boom. Done. <laughs> he barely has kids the, the way people have kids. <laughs> right. You know, you play with them, you, you throw them in the air, whatever the hell. I don't know. Yeah, that's a big He throws reason. him. He just throws him under a bus. That's where he's... <laughs> Edie, you're, a, you're an amazing oh. actor, a great person. Uh, I've known you a long time, Thank so you. this has been a real thrill and a real honor to have you in the back room, and I uh, hope we'll get a chance to do this again sometime. So happy to be here. Thank you, Andy. Alrighty. All the best. Take care. This episode of The Back Room was edited and produced by me, Andy Ostroyd. It was co-edited and co-produced by Maddie Rosenberg and co-produced by Jen Hamoud. Our theme song was composed by Andrew Hollander, and our logo was designed by Cricket Langell. And special thanks to Patricia Wind. Please take a moment to rate and review the podcast, and also follow or subscribe. Until next time, keep your eyes on Washington, Hollywood, and your own backyards, and have a great week. Bye.